Welcome to the Exit Poll New England podcast, where we are going to talk to politicians, operatives, and everybody in between to bring you the best analysis of what's happening in New England politics today. I'm your host, Clancy Main, and I'm joined by my co-host, Joe Titino. And in our third episode, we're going to be talking to Jason Palich about a number of topics related to Worcester politics. I hope you enjoy the show. Welcome, everybody, to the Exit Poll podcast. Today we have on Jason Palich, and I'm here with my co-host today, Joe Titino. Joe, what's going on, buddy? Clancy, everything's going well. Uh, It's good to have Jason on. Uh, You know, Jason was a friend of ours back to 2014, and he certainly has an interesting resume and an interesting perspective on Massachusetts politics. Yeah, no, and it was great to get into his... um, background working in for Veterans Inc., a little bit about the elect, how he was a presidential elector, and some of his stuff in um, the Shrewsbury School Committee. So, Joe, is there anything you want to touch on real quick about Massachusetts politics before we get into our interview with Jason? Uh, not much. You know, relatively slow week, but uh, we are going to highlight our Lieutenant Governor of the Week, who surprisingly was one of 10 people to receive an electoral vote in uh, our first presidential election here in the United States of America. Awesome. So everybody, grab, dig in and listen up to the Exit Poll podcast of our interview with Jason Palch. Enjoy. Hey, everybody. We are here with Exit Poll New England, and we have Jason Palch on today as our guest Jason is the current Democratic State Committee man. He's in his third term, and he's the new chair of the Field Services Committee. He is a member of the Shrewsbury School Committee, recently elected to his second term, elector for Hillary Clinton in 2016, and he currently handles the government affairs for Veterans, Inc., which is a nonprofit serving homeless veterans and veterans in need across New England. Jason, how are we doing today? I'm doing great. It is an honor to join the uh, podcast with you two fine gentlemen. Awesome. Joe, what's going on? Hey, how are we doing, Jason? Glad, glad to have you on. Uh, Jason Palich, the pride of Shrewsbury, Massachusetts, uh, a colonial through and through. Uh, <laughs> when when you drive through Route 9, there's a, uh, you know, people ask about him. They ask where he is. They want his autograph, everything like that. But Jason, glad to have you on. Uh, we got a lot to talk about. Well, you know why that is, Joe? Uh, I was born at uh, UMass Memorial Hospital in a room overlooking Belmont Street in Worcester, which is, of course, Route 9. Grew up in a Shrewsbury neighborhood off Route 9, went to college at Northeastern University, uh, bisected by Huntington Avenue, which, as you gentlemen know, is, of course, Route 9. Uh, and uh, my new home in Shrewsbury is uh, just a, a turn off Route 9, so it's the, uh, it's the uh, road of my life. Wow. No kidding. So... Jason, why don't you tell us a little bit about your bio, who you are, and how you uh, got started in politics at such a young age? Uh, you know, that's a great question. I was just interested in politics and government when I was pretty young. I can remember actually staying up late uh, watching the election results come in on election night 2000, Bush v. Gore. Uh, I was 11 years old at the time. And just to give you a sense of what staying up late is when you're an 11-year-old, uh, Florida had been called for Gore when I went to bed. Uh, so, uh, you know, that, that, that was, I, I, in my adult life, I found out that, uh, that call was rescinded sometime before 10 o'clock PM. So, uh, that's, that's the world of an 11 year old. But, you know, I, I started volunteering on campaigns when I was about 14, 15 years old, been involved ever since. Uh, you know, I, I, I love politics, but I also really love the aspect of being involved in government and public policy where you can make a difference in people's lives. You know, it sounds a little cheesy, a little cliche, but, uh, this is where the rubber meets the road. Sounds good. Sounds good. So Jason, how old are you exactly? If you don't mind me asking. Well, I'm so glad that this isn't a human resources conversation <laughs> as an employer because uh, that, I'm 28 years old, 28 years old, only recently 28. Uh, I am, in fact, uh, I'm a little bit, I'm a little bit older than Mr. Tino, as we found out recently. He's, uh, he's, uh, are you still 27, Joe? St- still 27 for another three months. Oh, uh, you have so much to learn. So much <laughs> I know. To gain. 
Got it. I just want to set the stage for our people so they understand, you know, how young you actually are and some of the things that you've done in your young career in politics. So it's awesome. Joe, what do you got for uh, Jason? <laughs> um, like I should be well, retiring as my name. <laughs> I don't know. I'm glad you say that, Clancy. <laughs> uh, I mean, Jason, we'll bounce back to, to how you sort of gotten started with politics, but we can hop into kind of how we all met, um, you know, set the stage on that end. It was, uh, I believe it may have been the end of 2013, and I'll never forget, there's a state committee woman, a great woman, uh, former, uh, former, uh, you know, just every woman, Diane Sachs from the great town of Grafton, and uh, I had gone up, uh, I was working for Steve Kerrigan, Clancy also working for Steve Kerrigan, I had gone to her house, and, and long story short, she scared the living crap out of me, uh, basically just intimidated me beyond belief, that was one of my first meetings in Massachusetts politics, and I had a meeting with you afterwards at um, In-House Coffee on Route 9, of course, and uh, I will never forget walking in there, and you were a few minutes late, and I, you know, I had never met you before or anything, but you kind of calmed my fears about Diane Sachs and the Massachusetts Democratic Party. Though I'm pretty um, sure the first thing I said to you was do whatever Diane Sachs tells you to do. <laughs> <laughs> you and Steve Kerrigan said the same exact thing, and, and I'm sure other people would say the same thing. Um, but, but it was great how, uh, you know, how we all met, we met on that campaign, um, you know, and basically, uh, you know, for, for several months, you know, we came, we asked your counsel and everything. Um, and, and it was, it, it was a good time. We, we, we had a good time, uh, some ups, several downs. Um, but it, it, it just brings it all to the point where, uh, you know, you are current chair of the Shrewsbury Democratic Town Committee. And, and what is it like, uh, to work as a chair of the Democratic Town Committee, um, and, you know, to be in control or, or you know, control in quotations of, of a town and, and short of directing the political activity of Democrats. I always say in quotations, of course, the members are on the show. Well, you know, I, I really enjoyed being the chair of the DTC here in Shrewsbury. I've been the chair actually since 2011. And, you know, I am really fortunate to be in one of the places where the Democratic Party is and has been growing for quite some time. You know, Shrewsbury has a reputation for being a very Republican community. Uh, it's, a, it's a suburban community uh, on the western end of the Metro West, so to speak. Uh, it's a large, large town where 36,000. Shrewsbury is actually the fourth largest municipality in Worcester County these days. It's only Worcester, Lemonster, and Fitchburg that uh, come in ahead of us in population. But despite the reputation of Shrewsbury as uh, sort of a long-standing Republican bastion, and of course a lot of notable Republicans, many of whom are, are personal friends of mine, come from this community, Shrewsbury is one of those places that's been doing a little bit better uh, for Democrats as time has moved forward. Uh, so being chair of the DTC has been a really great experience. We constantly have new people coming into the fold. Uh, we have new communities getting engaged in town. Uh, it's just a really great time. But I, I got I to gotta harken back a second, Joe, because you, you tied in a couple of related topics there by hearkening to our memories of Diane Sachs and the question of uh, how I got involved. So Diane Sachs, for our listeners who might not know, was actually uh, more than just a state committee woman. She was a DNC member. She was a Democratic National Committee woman from Massachusetts for a few terms. Uh, a very, very well-known, well-respected Democratic activist across the state. A uh, beloved figure, but she had a gruff personality, to put it mildly. And when she, <laughs> when she wanted to to make some changes, she would tell you what for. And and sometimes you didn't quite know what hit you. But, uh, she could be tough. I'd seen her reduce a few people to tears in my time. But you know the thing is, she's one of those people who really, really devoted her life to the service of others. You know, when I first got involved as a very young kid. Uh, in my mid-teens, uh, I did not come from a political family. I did not know what I was doing. Uh, I was socially awkward, overweight, uh, sort of, you could have you could have made me a character in an 80s movie as sort of the dork uh, in the background. I'm but shocked to were, hear that. There were, <laughs> I, I hope that sarcasm plants No, I, I, honestly, I would never have guessed any of that. Oh, but. oh, yeah. No, I've, I've expunged most of the photos from Facebook. That's... But uh, there were three ladies who recognized uh, me at a young age, decided that I had some ability and wanted to take me under their wing. Uh, first and foremost amongst them was my uh, dear friend and uh, current state committee member, Roberta Goldman from Shrewsbury. She was a state rep from Shrewsbury 
uh, back in the 80s, uh, retired teachers from Shrewsbury High School, but Roberta Goldman, Diane Sachs, and Marianne Duby, three women from Central Mass, all serve on the Democratic State Committee, uh, hardworking, they don't seek attention for themselves, they get it done. Uh, anybody who's anybody in the Democratic Party in Massachusetts uh, still has Roberta and Marianne, Diane, of course, having passed uh, high up on their call list. But those ladies took me uh, under their wing when I was very young. And uh, really, most of what I've achieved in the last 10, 15 years, uh, I, I put at, at the three feet of those uh, ladies who are really giants in the party. Is there anything particular that they taught you that you would pass on to the next generation? Oh, yeah, a whole bunch of things. And, of course, the ones that come to mind right away are the things that I wouldn't necessarily repeat for uh, a recording. <laughs> um, you know... Anything you can most, tell us. The most important people in politics... Let, let me be more specific. The most important people in campaigns are the people who are willing to do the work. Mm -hmm. There are a lot of people who um, will be treated as important who are big names, big players, who you spend a lot of time wooing and having meetings with and calling. The ones that are going to make the most difference are the ones who are willing to do the work. That can come in a lot of forms. That can be knocking doors and making phone calls. That can be calling other activists or donors to line them up on your behalf. Uh, but the folks who are really willing to step up and do the work uh, are the most important people. I've also learned uh, and and. It, it was directly stated to me at a young age, most of those people are women. <laughs> <laughs> That's interesting. The hard workers in any campaign uh, tend, tend to be overwhelmingly... Uh, women and that—that's that's sort of driven a lot of my outlook on on campaigns and politics. Not bad, not bad. So, Jason, um, I mentioned in your bio that you're a Democratic State Committee man um, in your third in your third term, and then you're the new chair of the Field Services Committee. So, obviously, with the governor's race coming up, Charlie Baker being, um, you know, the governor right now, what talk to us about the chair of the Field Service Committee and what you guys are doing in regards to the governor's race um, and what you guys did in regards to the presidential election that recently happened. Sure. So the Field Services Committee, just by way of background, it's a subcommittee of the Democratic State Committee that focuses on local Democratic parties. It focuses on supporting, bolstering, growing uh, town, city, and ward Democratic committees. And, you know, it's a really interesting time. I'm fortunate to have a co-chair, Karen Payne, who is the chair of the Ward 21 Democratic Committee in Boston, a uh, great lady, Karen Payne. And we lead a very large... Alston, uh, right? What's that? Is that Alston? Uh, you know what? I'm a suburban guy. You'll, uh, you got me there. <laughs> I think I, it uh, is. I, I think I, it is. I figure, I figure Clancy Maine might know that off the top of his head. Yeah. You should ask him. <laughs> yeah. Pretty sure it's Alston. Go on. Go on. But, uh, but uh, so, you know, it, it's a really exciting time. We have a lot of tasks on our plate uh, trying to support our existing town, Democratic uh, city, uh, town and ward committees, trying to build those committees where they either don't exist or may have gone a little bit lax. But, you know, you could go you could have gone to a Democratic town committee in a typical town five years ago and you would have seen a scene that looked like this. You would have seen. Probably a small room, maybe 10 people, maybe less, maybe more, with folks who had been involved for a long time. Um, and you would hear some form of a complaint about how folks tend not to join Democratic town and ward committees anymore. How much of a struggle it is to keep things going, how much of a challenge it is to keep people involved. Some of it is the typical bowling alone uh, our culture in the 21st century doesn't join things the way we did in the 20th century. But, you know, there's there's other reasons. What's going on now, and i got to tell you, we're really thrilled by it. People are coming out of the woodwork. Uh, Donald Trump has done no small favor to the Democratic Party in that he has really lit a fire under a lot of progressive activists who maybe hadn't gotten involved before, maybe had sat elections out, maybe they voted, but they really didn't think it was too important that they get involved. You know, Barack Obama was president. Hillary Clinton was going to win. Things were going to be fine at the end of the day. Mm -hmm. People are pouring out of the woodwork now to get involved to the point where uh, we actually, the first work product we created as a newly constituted field services committee under our new chair, Gus Pickford, 
and it's going to be distributed for the first time at the September Democratic State Committee meeting. We actually created a guide for chairs of town and ward committees on things that they can do to get some of these new folks involved now. We have gone all the way from we can't get people to come to meetings or join to we have so many people joining and they have such passion that chairs are looking for things to do uh, in an off year without an active campaign going on. Uh, so it's a really exciting time to be involved with field services, to be leading it. There's a lot of work at our plate, but uh, it, it portends to some really good things for the party coming up. Sounds good. Jay Absolutely. I mean, I we've seen a lot of that with indivisible groups. We've also, like you said, seen that with uh, local Democratic city and town committees, and hopefully that can be sustained. Um, because, I, I mean, just in general, from my perspective, it seemed like after Deval Patrick left office, you kind of saw that I don't, know, I don't know if I'd call it a vacuum, but you really saw it kind of wane a little bit. I don't know if you're, from your perspective, having been chair since 2011, um, you know, where did you see, you know, from that time when the party was so organized, it seemed like, or at least the campaigns of the no. Patrick were so organized, where do you see, did you see a decline? Did people just not get engaged? Did they think they had it too great? Or did we just kind of, uh, did we just kind of lapse as a party in the state? You know, sometimes it's an interesting question you pose. Sometimes there's an advantage to being an underdog, uh, to being on the out and seeing that you're on the out and, and seeing that as a problem that needs to be addressed. You know, something that I think might have happened to our state party and certainly happened to our party at the national level, when you have success in the highest executive office, when the president or the governor is someone of your party who represents your party well, uh, you know, what What can happen, and it's sort of counterintuitive because you think it would always be a strong time for the party at lower levels. Sometimes the party organization can atrophy under a strong executive because it becomes about that person's re-election campaign first and foremost. And then later on, uh, the goal is just less obvious. You know, once you've re-elected a president or a governor who either can't or won't seek another term, what's next becomes a little bit unclear. When you're on the out, uh, it's very obvious what your task is, what your mission is. Uh, you know, we've seen Republicans certainly come back. You, you look at the, the the 2008 election when Barack Obama defeated John McCain, and my God, the Republican Party was probably the weakest it had ever been in, in the year 2009. And the next thing we knew in the blink of an eye, they had both houses of Congress and most governor's mansions across the country. There's something to be said for being the underdog, and I think that that's a lot of what's going on right now. Definitely. And Jason, do you see, so kind of bring that back to the local level, um, you know, what's going on around the state. Worcester County has been profiled in the Globe, uh, it's been profiled in, in different places about how Worcester County has gone, you know, obviously the, the city of Worcester, pretty working class, very diverse typically traditionally has voted democratic but the worcester county in general um has taken a little bit of a red turn and do you see with this new surge that do you think we'll see um you know a little, do you think we'll see it trend in that direction will it keep going that way or do you think we'll kind of see the tide stemmed a little bit because i know jim mcgovern does very well congressman jim mcgovern does very well in the city of worcester but it's in the towns where he really has to do some battle and try to keep the margins close in order to to uh, you know, to pull out a win, and the same goes for gubernatorial candidates. Um, you know, obviously the ticket coming up in 2018, uh, you're going to have a Worcester County resident, uh, Lieutenant Governor Karen Polito from your hometown, uh, mm -hmm. be on the ballot, and that some say that that helps. It helped with Tim Murray back in 06. But do we see Worcester County continuing to trend red, or do we see it kind of stemmed and 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 maybe it comes back a little bit more to the center? You know, Joe, you. Uh touched on one of my absolute favorite topics, uh, which is, uh, you know, democratic strength in Worcester County. So I want to, I want to come back to the fall of, uh, 2016 for a minute. You know, w most of us who follow politics and campaigns know that Hillary Clinton, despite winning the popular vote, only won, uh, 400, between four and 500 counties, uh, across the United States. And that's because, obviously, she and Democrats generally tend to do well in urban centers. And there are states, you know, Nevada being an example, where two-thirds of the population live in Clark County, Illinois, where uh, a huge chunk of the population lives in Cook County, 
Democrats do well in, in more populous counties. Uh, but of, of our nation's some 3,000 counties, Hillary Clinton only won between four and 500. And a very small portion of those, because obviously Barack Obama won the presidency twice and Hillary Clinton lost it, a very small portion of those did Hillary Clinton actually do better than Barack Obama did. Worcester County is one of those places. Hillary Clinton's margin over Donald Trump was actually an improvement over Barack hmm. Obama's margin in 2012. And, you know, certainly Worcester County took a, a conservative turn over the last generation. You have uh, the city of Worcester itself, which votes about a, as favorably for Democrats as it always has. But then you have North County, uh, the towns around Lemonster, Fitchburg, and the Blackstone Valley to the south of Worcester, Millbury, all the way down to the border. Uh, that used to be, you know, a generation or two back, solid Democratic towns. Uh, and then to the east of Worcester, you had the big suburbs like Shrewsbury, Westboro, Northboro, Grafton, which are typical Republican towns. What's been happening over the past 20 years or so with the Blackstone Valley, uh, the area in North County has been becoming gradually more conservative. It used to be back in the day all the state reps from the Blackstone Valley were Democrats. Now they're all Republicans, or for the most part, Republicans. Uh, and the points east of Worcester, those west metro west towns, so to speak, was sort of the Republican area. You've sort of seen that flip. Worcester, again, as a city, is about as democratic as it always has been. But now the towns to the north, west and south of Worcester, which for the most part tend to be smaller towns, uh, are voting Republican at the state level. Many of them voted for Donald Trump last fall. But you move east. You move to towns along the 495 corridor. Uh, Northboro, Shrewsbury, Westboro, Grafton, again, these are towns that had been solidly Republican at the state level. They voted for the Democrat for president, but by small margins. Uh, Shrewsbury, my hometown, I'll cite as an example. Shrewsbury always voted for the Democrat for president by 10 points. That was true going back a generation. It was always 10 points, maybe a little more, maybe a little less. That was about it. Shrewsbury voted for Hillary Clinton by 24 points. Shrewsbury, Grafton, Westboro, and Northboro gave Hillary Clinton the largest margin that they'd given a Democrat running for president since LBJ. So what's happening on the whole is you do see parts of Worcester County uh, that are becoming more conservative. But then the towns to the east in Worcester County along the 495 corridor are simultaneously becoming more progressive. So on balance, Worcester, I like to think of as kind of the Ohio of uh, Massachusetts. It's a competitive place where every candidate, no matter what their party, no matter what their background, no matter what their stripe, no matter what their angle, would do well to compete in Worcester County. It's also now the second largest. It is funny that you mention all of that because I was looking at the map of the recent presidential election and everything west of Worcester seems to have went red, but you were saying to the right is blue, and I just find it fascinating that... Um, they're moving as you move further west things are getting red but then they pop back to blue but it's uh that was a great yeah, and, you know, it, it, population clancy has something to do with that you know again most of the towns west north and south of worcester as a city tend to be smaller communities and what's happened is we've shifted from them voting for the democrat for president by maybe a couple of hundred votes to trump winning them by maybe a couple of hundred votes but then you have behemoths like Shrewsbury at 36,000, Westboro and Grafton, which are about 18,000 apiece. And when those communities go from 10 points for the Democrat in Shrewsbury's case or five in Grafton's case to 20, 24, 25 point margins, uh, it, it more than makes up the difference. So you're seeing change really everywhere in Worcester. But on balance, it's a very competitive place. Mm -hmm. So... That uh, that's that was great analysis. So, Jason, I am I love municipal government. I've worked in municipal government, and that's probably where I'll continue my career for the foreseeable future. So, I deal with boards of selectmen, school committees, all of those things. So, talk to us a little bit about running a local race like that, and then your work on the Shrewsbury School Committee as well. You know, it's interesting. It, municipal government is where, really where the rubber meets the road. It's where most things happen, and, and people don't realize that in general. But in New England and more places than most, going back to colonial times, we have such a tradition of strong local government in New England, going back to the old town meeting where everybody could collect in the local congregational church in the 
you know, in the 1700s, and that's where all the town's decisions were made. Most of what's handled at the local level in Massachusetts is handled at the county level or the state level uh, in other states. You know, every just about every town in Massachusetts is either a school district unto itself or is part of a regional school district that's only a couple of towns with its own superintendent. Most of the Deep South actually elects a statewide superintendent of schools. That's wild. Uh, I didn't know that. Yeah, roads, uh, you know, utilities, roads, these are things that are handled by county government in most parts of the United States. It's just about all happening at the municipal level in Massachusetts. And, you know, Shrewsbury, we, Shrewsbury, uh, we hold our municipal election the first Tuesday of May. Uh, and Shrewsbury, just like most New England towns, you see a really small portion of the electorate turnout, which on the one level, you know, it's a little sad. You wish more people would take part because it's really where the rubber meets the road. It's where decisions about zoning are made. It's where decisions about education funding are made for the most part. It's where decisions about roadways, utilities, uh, parks and recreation, libraries, things that impact people's day-to-day lives uh, are really made. So, you know, on the one hand, it's sad you don't see more turnout. On the other hand, you know, you go canvassing in a local race, you're knocking doors for yourself or for another candidate. And when you're when you're looking at likely voters, which is a smaller group of people, you really you get to reach everybody. You know, you run in a state race as, as I have and, you know, you need a big operation, a lot of volunteers. You run for a local office and it is conceivable you could really knocking on doors, knock on the door of just about everybody who's likely to come out and cast a ballot. Um, and there's something about that that for a candidate, I think, is very empowering. So there's pluses and minuses to the way that happens. But, um, you know, uh, municipal government in Massachusetts is uh, is where a lot of the most important decisions that impact people's day-to-day lives are actually made. It's a beautiful thing. So talk to us about some of your accomplishments on the school committee. Um, tell us a little bit about what's going on in the Shrewsbury schools and whatnot and what you've been working on there. Shrewsbury has a lot of unique challenges. So we have a very successful school district. Shrewsbury Public Schools perform well by just about any metric you can come up with. A lot of families, including my own, uh, come to Shrewsbury for the quality of the school system. Uh, I'm actually not a lifelong Shrewsbury resident. I came here when I was 18 months old. I was not yet two years old, which that's a very important distinction. Carpetbagger. That's right. right. That's right. But, you know, my parents, neither of whom were from Shrewsbury, my mother was from Worcester, my father was from upstate New York, they chose Shrewsbury for the same reason that most families have chosen Shrewsbury, uh, which has just had explosive growth in the last generation. Uh, they chose it for the same reason, which is the schools. Shrewsbury was actually the fastest growing of Massachusetts's 351 cities and towns, two years running in the 90s. I believe it was 1995 and 1996. Um, and so we have a great school system. We also have... Uh, a very efficient school system. We have a very low property tax rate in Shrewsbury. We recently raised it. We had a successful Proposition 2.5 override in 2014, the community's first. But in the lead-up to that override, you know, Shrewsbury, you would have found Shrewsbury in the top 10% of Massachusetts school districts on just about any performance metric. We were in the bottom 10% of per-pupil spending. So we were performing very well uh, but we had run up sort of against the wall. Most of a school district's expenditures are legally encumbered. And what I mean by that is you have special education, which is mandated uh, by federal and state law. You have to meet curriculum sa- standards that are set by the Commonwealth. Uh, teachers in Massachusetts, uh, of, of course, you, their salaries are contractually obligated. So most of what a school district spends isn't discretionary. It's legally encumbered in one way or the other. And most local school districts' expenses grow at a rate that exceeds 2.5% each year. And that's, of course, important because property taxes can only go up by 2.5% each year, uh, barring an override. So it's a significant challenge for Shrewsbury and a lot of communities, especially suburban communities, uh, to keep up good schools, to make the investments that we have to make, uh, but, but to do so within very, very restrictive uh, financial constraints. You know, school districts represent the majority of any of just about any municipality's budget. But your school committee does not set the tax rate. We have no authority over the tax rate. With the school committee, what we do is advocate. We advocate for the needs of the district. You know, I, I recently began my second term. I was a 
elected in May of 2017. My first term was actually a 2012 to 2015. I didn't run for re-election in 2015. I was involved uh, in another campaign at the time. But uh, my, my, my significant accomplishment for my first term, uh, myself and my four colleagues, there's five of us, it was really advocating to the voters, to the residents of Shrewsbury for a successful operational override to actually convince the residents that we needed to make more of an investment. You know, as a low-tax community, Shrewsbury had shot down four operational overrides in the 10 years leading up to the one that succeeded. Wow. We went to the voters, we explained what was happening in our schools, how performance could be impacted. Uh, we ran a very aggressive field campaign as well. Uh, we identified, uh, we got our ones and twos uh, in campaign speak. And uh, that override, we went from failing four overrides in the prior 10 years to that one past 67-33, 66-34 maybe. So that, uh, that was definitely what, uh, what I was most proud of from that first term. Awesome, and that's a great accomplishment. I was just looking up the Shrewsbury numbers for um, some of the accomplishments that the Shrewsbury schools, the children have, and the average SAT is over um, 600 on both the reading and the math. So that's, that's great to see. Um, so that is awesome. Joe, what do you got for Jason? Jason, obviously your second term on the Shrewsbury School Committee, go Colonials. Uh, just wanted to, uh, to segue over, you know, your first term, 2012-2015, uh, you decided that you could make a difference on a bigger level. A lot of, a lot of different things had aligned. Obviously the 2014 <laughs> race, we got to talk about it, 2014 race. Uh, had Martha Coakley had won, you probably wouldn't have uh, taken the next step. But, of course, the dominoes as they fall, Charlie Baker wins. Um, Karen Polito, Shrewsbury resident, becomes lieutenant governor. Uh, that creates an opening uh, for... Actually, actually Karen, Karen uh, the lieutenant governor, uh, Representative Polito, had, uh, had not run for re-election in 2010. It was actually Representative Beaton's appointment as Secretary of uh, Energy and Environmental Affairs. Uh, that created an opening uh, at the end of 2014, which uh, I think is what you're getting at. You, you beat me. You beat me <laughs> to the punch. Uh, but Matt Matt Beaton, uh, another great Shrewsbury resident, moves on in 2015. The governor appoints him, as you said, to the uh, Office of Energy and Environmental Affairs. And lo and behold, the uh, thing of Massachusetts politics that we love to see: special election. Uh, <laughs> you throw your hat in the ring. Uh, back in, I believe it was late 2014, you made it the announcement. November of 2014. It was a Sunday afternoon. I remember it vividly. Beautiful, sunny Sunday afternoon, a Patriot Sunday. Uh, it, it, uh, was cold. it was cold. It was it was a uh, bitter cold. <laughs> and you, you decided to throw your hat in the ring for the 11th Worcester District, which had not, I think as you mentioned earlier, had not elected a Democrat since the 80s. Uh, is that right, Roberta Goldman? Who, that is uh, correct. One of your mentors. Yeah. Um, so you, you decided to go for it, as did uh, Hannah Kane. Uh, both decided to go head-on in 2015. Tell us a little bit about that race. It was, it was one of the only games in town uh, in Massachusetts after that tiring 2014 election. And, uh, you know, Democrats who won every, uh, you know, had done well in the election, minus the gubernatorial campaign. So there were, there were still some activists ready to, to rock and roll. Tell us a little bit about that campaign, sort of how you got into it and, and how it went and and uh, just your overall thoughts. You know, it, it was the experience of a lifetime. Uh, you know, it, it was, uh, uh, I did decide to throw my hat in the ring in 2014 when the seat opened. I thought I could make a difference. I thought I could be an effective voice for the community. So I'd actually, prior to being on the school committee, I had actually worked for the legislature for three years. I had been communications director to uh, State Senator Mike Moore, whose district, of course, includes uh, Shrewsbury. Uh, so threw my hat into the ring. Uh, it was a great campaign, and you know, uh, Shrewsbury, th this seat had been in Republican hands since uh, 1986, um, and you know, which actually, uh, you know, in my lifetime and yours, Joe, there, there had been no Democratic state rep uh, from Shrewsbury, and for the most part, Democrats actually didn't even contest the seat. It was thought to be one of the most solidly Republican districts in the state, but I knew that times were changing, you know, it wasn't the 90s anymore. Um, Shrewsbury Republicans, many of whom are my good friends, you know, they like, uh, they're supportive of the business community. They have an entrepreneurial spirit. They like low taxes. They abhor waste in government. But, you know, they're, they're pro-choice. They're pro-gay rights. They're socially progressive. They believe that there's a role for government to play in educating our kids, in supporting uh, their neighbors who might be struggling financially. 
Um, so, you know, I, 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 I knew that times had changed and there was an opening there. So dove in, uh, ran a really aggressive campaign. It was a four and a half month special election in just the worst winter you could imagine. So, I mean, I, we knew <laughs> Joe's laughing because he remembers. <laughs> Uh, you know, we knew, we knew the Republicans would, would, would obviously, uh, you know, this having been a Republican seat for a long time, the Republicans would have a lot of financial resources at their disposal. We were up against a lot. Um, it hadn't been a good Democratic year. My opponent, uh, Hannah Kane, very strong candidate. And let me just take a minute to say uh, one of the things that made the campaign a little bit unusual is that Hannah and I were and are good friends most people who run against one another and refer to one another as good friends are usually uh, exaggerating a little bit. They're lying. They're saying it to sound cordial and nice. Hannah and I actually were and are good friends. That 2014 override that I mentioned earlier in response to Clancy's question, Hannah and I actually led that campaign together uh, along with a few other folks. So, you know, it was a very interesting campaign, very strong Republican candidate. But, you know, we ran... You know, we did what Democrats do best. We ran a field campaign. We not tried to knock on as many doors as we could, identify our voters, turn them out. And that was the winter where, for about six weeks in a row, uh, early 2015, from January to March, every Monday we got about eight feet of snow. <laughs> and we actually had to create another code on our walk sheets. Those of you who have done canvassing for a campaign before uh, know how that works. One of those codes is inaccessible, meaning you can't get to the house because they, you know, that there's no visible front door. They've got a gate that's locked or something like that. We had to create a new code called inaccessible snow, <laughs> meaning you couldn't get to the house only because they hadn't shoveled out from the latest storm. Uh, <laughs> and that was important because when the snow melted a little bit or when they shoveled, you know, you could go back. Uh, but I mean, it, it was just incredibly uphill. Everything you can imagine was the wind in our face, but it was a lot of fun. Learned a lot. Had a great team of people behind me. Uh, we actually, uh, you know, I'm, I'm proud. We, we got about 48.5% of the vote. So uh, representative, of course, she won that representative campaign. Uh, representative Hannah Kane took six precincts. I took six precincts. It was about 200-odd uh, ballots that separated us out of about, I want to say, seven or 8,000 votes cast, 52, 48 um, so it was a great campaign. Obviously, I wanted to win, um, but it was a real good learning experience. And, uh, you know, the, the narrowness of that finish, uh, I think back to Election Day. And, uh, you know, just Election Day, in my experience with campaigns, is just sort of when everything thinks, everything goes wrong on Election Day. And all you can do is laugh. And um, I had arranged uh, to have, because I had to make a lot of stops as the candidate, you know, you got to bring uh, donuts and coffee in the morning and then sandwiches in the afternoon to your supporters out holding signs, knocking doors. I had arranged to have uh, somebody drive me around on Election Day. I had a, uh, I had a volunteer driver, Joe Tutino. Uh, Clancy, right. you might know him. <laughs> oh, He's good guy. Well, Solid driver, too. I don't know about that. <laughs> sprung a flat around 1130 in the morning. <laughs> And that that was probably the moment it sunk in for me that uh, you know this this day might not go as planned, uh, <laughs> but I just I had to get that story in. I had to get <laughs> oh that boy! Uh, and of course, uh, found great folks to replace the mobile station in Shrewsbury, right across from our campaign headquarters in Route Nine. Great uh, place to get a tire changed. Yes, yes, and I believe they had some corrective remarks to make about the distance you had brought it uh, <laughs> after the tires. Uh, demise, but you know it was a great learning experience. Uh, I did not run for my my seat on the school committee was up right around the same time. I did not throw my hat in the ring for re-election. I, I I don't believe in running for two offices at once. I think when you decide you want to do something, you know, you need to go to the voters and say this is this is what I'm putting on the table. So uh, you know, it took me out of public service, but it was a great experience, uh, and of course that bug stayed with me, and now I'm back on school committee. Back in the saddle again. Um, but, Jason, this is a follow-up question. You probably don't expect to get a question like this. I Recently, there was a kid up in, uh, I believe it was Tingsboro, Mass. Um, you know, I, I'm working for Congresswoman Nikki Songus, And, um, you know, every once in a while, you get a local candidate. You know, how should we do this? How should we get involved? Um, you know, how should we run our campaign? So I gave him some advice. And, unfortunately, he only lost by a few votes. Really strong candidate. First time out there. Um and unfortunately, he lost. And, and I had gotten a message that, oh, you know. What, what, was, you know what, was, what was he running for? 
It was it was a real local race. Um, it was town elections. Um, so you know, as you said, as you mentioned, the turnout is extremely low. The mm-hmm. margin, I think, the margin was less than ten votes, to be honest. Wow. And yeah, and, and I think he was a little bit discouraged. Um, but you know, you you lost a pretty high profile race. It was a, an uphill battle, like you said. You had ran an excellent race, having seen it up close. You know, the the organization was impeccable. You know, hat tip to to uh, Lisa Majinski who uh, was your field director as well, who did a yes. beautiful job. And the people Off of Shrewsbury, um, you know, the, the people that Kim Longs of the world, you know, the Roberta Goldmans who really came together and people from the state committee. But you lose a race and the temptation is there. I mean, not for you because, you know, you know how this works, but for a first-time candidate or people out there who want to run for office and they lose and they're like, they get discouraged. What's your advice for somebody like that, you know, who, you know, it, it's not fun. Losing's not fun. Clancy and I have lost on the highest level, one of the highest levels possible, and we know what the next day looks like. What's your advice to someone, especially a local candidate, new people that are running based off of, uh, you know, the Donald Trump election uh, who are energized? Uh, you know, what's your advice to them? You know, you got to keep going. You got to pick up the pieces and move on and you got to try again. Uh, And, you know, it's really cliched and people don't like to hear it. But, you know, in politics, in elective politics, people think of politics and government and they think of high minded policy debates about the issues of the day. They think of grand orations and big speeches and a president addressing a state of the union and all that jazz. Um, But, you know, the real meat of politics is a lot of grueling work. It's door to door. It's canvassing. It's phone banking. It's being that candidate who isn't wealthy, so you have to raise money. So you sit there with a list of donors and you call through it, and it is just a miserable experience start to finish. It's hard work, and it's not glamorous work, and it's not work that people pay attention to, and you lose. In fact, many people who are politically significant in this country have lost more than once. President Clinton uh, lost his first race for Congress in Arkansas in 1974. President Obama, President uh, George H.W. Uh, Bush, Bush the elder, had lost a Senate race in Texas. Uh, President Bush, George W. Bush's son, had lost his first race for Congress in Texas. Uh, Barack Obama lost. Not only did Barack Obama lose a race for Congress in 2001, he lost a Democratic primary. Um, I mean, y- you have to bounce back from losses. You have to learn from them. You have to keep going. Uh, and, and, you know, losing isn't fun. It can be a miserable experience, but, you know, you learn more from losing than you do from winning. You know, there's that old saying, uh, victory has a thousand fathers, but defeat is an orphan. You know, when you win, there's a temptation to just think you did everything right. You knew what you were doing. You knew how to do it. You got it done. That's that. When you lose and you're forced to analyze why, you learn lessons. Um, so, you know, to your friend who ran for local office, certainly I, I would tell everybody who runs for local office, knock on every door of every likely voter, uh, but keep at it. Keep at it. Keep going, because uh, that's the only way you're uh, you're going to get to a win. All, all the best political talents have lost a race uh, at some point, especially early in their career when it's still fun. So, Jason, your answer there is a perfect segue into my next question. I've always been fascinated about losses and what you can do better, what you learn from them. So you talked a little bit about how, you know, you have to take something from your losses. But was there a point in the election where you thought that you made a pivotal mistake that could have ruined the whole campaign? Was there anything that you think that you could have done different that would have changed the outcome of the uh, the election? You know, that's a really interesting question. It's it's one of those that I've pondered, and of course I've tried not to ponder it so much it comes to define my life. Uh, but it's certainly what I've thought about. You know, there were mistakes that were made. Um, there were very few dramatic moments in the campaign. Um, it was, you know, both sides ran a pretty solid campaign. It, it sort of progressed started, start to finish. Um, things that I would have done differently. Um, you know, I had, I had sensed the opportunity coming and I had started to talk to a few people, but it really wasn't until the race broke open publicly that I, you know, sort of declared myself as a candidate and started aggressively making calls. Uh, In hindsight, I would have started making some of those calls a little bit sooner. Um, There were individual things I would have done differently here or there, but, you know, the, the, the thing that I come back to the most, and my campaign was so focused on direct voter contact doors and phones, it's almost hard to say this. I would have knocked on more doors. 
Wow. You know, I, I devoted just about every waking moment I could um, to that campaign outside of work. I, of course, I needed to support myself, had a full-time job. I used just about all the vacation time I had in the final weeks. But if you can believe it, I would have I would have found the time to talk to more voters. You know, I think of, you know, maybe that time I had I, that time I had a rough night, uh, and so I ordered a pizza and, and sat in and caught up on emails. You know, could I gone out canvassing then? Uh, you know, when it, when an election, especially at the level of a state rep race, is so close, you know, if he had talked to a few more voters, you would have you would have made a difference. Um, so, you know, I'm fortunate in that we didn't we didn't have a major gap that defined the race. We had gaffes. We had gaffes that got attention. We had mistakes here and there. Nothing that I would say really changed um, the tone and tenor of the race in any meaningful way. I would just say, you know, I would have managed to have spoken to even more voters. Got it. So my question is a nitty gritty strategy uh, one on this one is that. What was your universe like? Were you going for Republicans? Not did you completely ignore them? Only going for the Democrats? Talk to us a little bit about that. What your universe was, and could you have talked to more Republicans? Do you think you could have swung them? Did you swing a decent amount? You know, that's that's a great question. A couple of things to say. First of all, I think the the targeting uh, on my race was spot on. Um, we. We had, at the end of the day, identified just about enough voters to win uh, in a perfect world. And, of course, the world is never perfect, which is why I sort of settle on for what would I have done differently. I would have spoken to more voters. But, you know, one of the things that I decided right away um, was that there were, you know, this I had run for, obviously, school committee before and won. I had managed other people's campaigns before. One of the difficult things when you move from being somebody who either works on, manages, or consults for political campaigns to being a candidate is you need to make a decision right away. What are you going to do yourself? And what are you going to have either a a, a volunteer on a lower level race or a professional on a serious race do? Uh, And one of the things that I decided right away was I was going to have a professional do my voter targeting and I was going to have a professional do my direct mail. Uh, And those were critical I believe to the campaign being more successful than a lot of people expected uh, for Democrat in Shrewsbury. You know, I I could have done my voter targeting myself. I could have wasted a lot of time pouring over data sets, trying to adjust it uh, based on this, that, or another experience. I could have uh, spent a lot of time developing direct mail pieces as I had done for other campaigns. Um, but one of the decisions that I made, you know, I said, you know, this isn't a school committee race. This isn't something where I have the capacity literally to talk to everybody by myself. I've got to be a candidate here and I've got to be a full-time candidate. And so one of th- that, that early decision that I made was there are certain things I'm going to have to have a professional do. I needed a, a full-time field director. And Joe mentioned uh, earlier that was Lisa Mozinski, uh, who is just a really accomplished party leader from the Blackstone Valley, uh, who did a great job on my campaign. I needed somebody to do my voter targeting. I needed to hire somebody to work on direct mail. Um, And that was a really hard choice to make because I didn't want to spend the money. I didn't want to surrender that level of control. But, you know, there's a difference uh, between being a candidate and being somebody who's running the minutia of a campaign. Uh, And those are differences that really magnify the higher up you go. And so the things that I had done for myself when I ran for uh, town meeting when I was 19 or school committee when I was 22. Um, those were things that I had to surrender to other people. And, and, and on the whole uh, of the mistakes I made, I do not count those amongst mistakes. Those were good choices that really positioned the campaign to do as well as it did. It's a great piece of advice for other people looking to run for state rep seats, state senator seats and whatnot. So that's, that was great. So Jason, uh, I, I apologize. We should be calling you the Honorable Jason Pouch because back in 2016, <laughs> back in 2016, you were one of 11 Democrats elected as a presidential elector, um, which obviously presidential elector cast one of uh, the state's votes uh, for uh, the winner of the Electoral College in a particular state. And in 2016, Hillary Clinton, uh, although she lost uh, the country in electoral votes, won Massachusetts quite handily, and uh, you were able to cast one of the 11 votes 
um, at the Massachusetts State House. Although it was a, a somber ceremony, it was still a, uh, a constitutional ceremony. It was very, very interesting. So take us, take us through what it's like to get elected, or, or what you even do to get elected, uh, uh, become an elector in Massachusetts, and uh, sort of that process from being elected. I believe it was August 2016, about a year ago. Uh, this time you were elected by the Democratic State Committee um, until uh, the, the actual ceremony itself, which I believe was either in December. Uh, well, yes, it was in December. Um, you know, yep, wh December what that's 19th. like. Yep. Mm -hmm. yeah, it's an interesting question. I always love to explain because I, I, I find that a lot of people who really want to know, want to understand, don't, up to and including uh, even academics. I had a political science professor at Northeastern who, when sort of called out on the floor by a student to explain how individual electors are chosen, struggled to do so. I'll come back to that story in a minute. It was a fun time for me. But uh, just by way of background for folks, so you know, we know what the Electoral College is, but how do people get to be electors? Um, usually when you ask somebody in the know that question, you get a lot of pat answers that don't go into detail. Um, you hear things like, oh, party elites or, or you know, sort of buzzwords like that. What happens in every state uh, across the U.S., every party that has a presidential candidate on the ballot gets to choose a slate of electors equal to the number of electoral votes that state has. So, for example, in Massachusetts, we have 11 electoral votes. The Massachusetts Democratic and Republican parties, and for that matter, all of our parties that happen to have a presidential candidate, get to choose a slate of electors. These people are pledged to vote for that candidate. Uh, should they win. And what happens is the candidate who wins the popular vote in that state, their party's slate, then become the electors. So in most states, this, the uh, state party committee, the Democratic or Republican state committee, choose the electors. There are some states that have the state party convention make that choice. There's one state, I believe it's Pennsylvania, that actually allows the campaigns just to provide a list of names of people to use. Uh, but so, you know, I, I was chosen to be on the Democratic slate uh, by the uh, Democratic State Committee in Massachusetts, on which I, of course, serve uh, in August of last year. Uh, most people don't know that the Massachusetts Republican State Committee also had a slate of electors that in the unlikely event the Republican had won Massachusetts, those people would have become the electors. I would not have been one. But, you know, it was a it was an interesting experience uh, and why I did it. I had seen it mostly uh, as an honorarium. Uh, and at the time I was working hard for Hillary Clinton, I was taking nothing for granted, but I really liked the idea of getting to cast an electoral vote, uh, for the first woman, uh, to become the president of the United States. I, I really wanted to be a part of that history. Um, and you know, obviously that didn't happen and that was very disappointing, but when we had our electoral ceremony, so all the electors, the electoral college never meets as one body. The electors gather in their respective state capitals. Uh, this past year, it was December 19th. I believe it's the third Monday in December. So it, it happens at the same time. The electors meet in their respective state capitals and vote. And, you know, in Massachusetts, um, we made sure it wasn't a sad day. You know, we it was a somber occasion. You know, Donald Trump was going to become president, and that, that rightfully so was very concerning. Our candidate, Hillary Clinton, was not. That was very sad. But, you know... Every elector gets a chance to speak in one capacity or other as part of the ceremony. And we each got up and, you know, we we were defiant. Uh, we we talked about why we had chosen to support Hillary Clinton uh, and how we were going to keep fighting. And actually, uh, the secretary of the Commonwealth, Bill Galvin, uh, his office runs a ceremony. And Secretary Galvin uh, rightly pointed out uh, that uh, there was an even lonelier gathering of Massachusetts electors in 1972 when Massachusetts was the only state of our 50 to vote against Richard Nixon's reelection. Uh, and within a few years, he was a former president. Uh, so Massachusetts had stood up defiantly against the tide before we did so again on December 19th. Uh, I, as secretary of the Electoral College, got to call the role that uh, will always be one of the high honors of my life. And while calling that role, I, of course, snapped a, ba uh, a photo of my ballot, which I promptly put on Facebook and Instagram, um, casting that vote for Hillary Clinton and against Donald Trump on behalf of the people of Massachusetts. Um, and and that, that is something that uh, I don't know what I'm going to do with the rest of my life, but uh, someday if I make it to being a senior citizen and I've got a group of grandkids, uh, someday I will tell my grandkids that I cast an electoral vote for Hillary Clinton against Donald Trump. 
Absolutely. I mean, it was a pretty cool ceremony having been there, and and I think people misunderstand the Electoral College and what goes on, but obviously the honor of a lifetime, and uh, hopefully the next go-around, 2020, the Democrats will be casting uh, an electoral ballot in, for the president-elect. Um, so, Jason, we appreciate it. Just one more question we got to ask. Uh, what's next for you? Obviously, uh, you, you are a homeowner in the the great town of Shrewsbury. Um, so you're in Shrewsbury for the long term. Uh, you are you are dedicated to Massachusetts politics and Democratic politics in, in your hometown in particular. And, and you, you've got some good roots in central Massachusetts and a friend of the program. Of course, we wouldn't have asked you on if not. So so what's next? What's next for you? Obviously, you work at Veterans Inc. Uh, currently and, and are you know still on state committee running the uh, field services committee. Uh, but what's next? You know, I'd love to see retirement. Uh, I think about uh, maybe getting a condo in Boca uh, uh, day in and day out, maybe enjoying a few cigars, uh, scotch here or there. I haven't quite figured out how to pay for it yet, so that's kind of on the back burner. You know, it's a little cliche, but uh, I love doing what I'm doing right now. Um, So I'm I'm recently re-elected to the school committee. and I got to ask, you know, when I ran for school committee, why don't why don't you run for selectmen? Why don't you run for the legislature again? Why don't you do this, do that? I'm on school committee because I liked being on school committee. Uh, I love being on school committee. You know, it, it can be a difficult uh, job sometimes because you have a lot of pressures on the school committee without necessarily having a lot of control. Uh, but really, to see the district succeed uh, the way Shrewsbury Public Schools do is just you know, it's a real treat. Uh, one of the pieces of advice that I always give to young people, or really anybody who's considering running for office, uh, I'm not. I'm not a big fan of running for office just to run for office. I'm not a big fan of people who run for office just because it's open or available, or because the opportunity presents itself. Uh, and certainly that happens in politics. But you know, these elected offices, they're jobs. You have to want to do this. And uh, I really love being a school committee member, and uh, it's what I've signed up to do uh, for the time being, and uh, I'm happy to be a part of it. Of course, I'm going to continue to be active on the state committee and my Democratic town committee as well, growing as we are here in Shrewsbury and uh, on the state level, trying to bolster Democratic town and ward committees across the state. But my focus uh, for the time being is on the uh, success of Shrewsbury Public Schools and the 6,101 pupils it has the privilege to serve. So, Jason, we got a we got a couple more questions for you, and then we're going to close this thing out. But give us your quick your quick thoughts on the gubernatorial race. Give us some predictions on the gubernatorial race in the uh, Senate race with Elizabeth Warren coming up in two thousand eighteen. You know, I think the race for governor is going to wind up being competitive. You know, we, there was a Globe story some time back about uh, how Governor Baker and his team are going to try to raise thirty million dollars, and that was eye popping, and a lot of people sort of said why. And I have to tell you. And, of course, uh, as a state committee man, I'll be supporting the Democratic nominee. Uh, but I have to tell you, I think that Governor Baker and his people understand the landscape better than most. He's very popular right now. He has very strong approval ratings. Uh, but Donald Trump is doing such damage to the Republican brand across the nation, let alone in a state like Massachusetts that has always had Democratic leanings, I think it's going to wind up being a competitive race. You know, there are a couple of Democrats running for governor right now. I think the field is pretty much set, uh, who bring a lot of strengths to the table, in particular Jay Gonzalez. Um, and, and, you know, I think it's going to wind up being a very competitive race. I think the governor understands that. I think the Democrats running for governor understand that. You know, a lot of people uh, in trying to say it's going to be a wash or it's not going to be a really competitive fight— they hearken back to Governor Weld getting reelected in 1994 when he got reelected by, I think it was 71% of the vote. It was the largest margin anybody running for governor of Massachusetts had ever had. And, and people sort of, they say Charlie Baker's approval ratings look like Governor Weld's then, and they hearken back to that. What people also forget is that just two years after being reelected with 71% of the vote, Bill Weld went on to lose a Senate race to John Kerry. And what happened in that 1996 Senate race was that it was nationalized. There were a lot of debates. Each campaign raised a lot of money. They were very aggressive. It was the marquee Senate race of the year. But at the end of the day, Massachusetts residents just decided they did not want a Republican, even one that they otherwise liked, uh, to be speaking for them in Washington, D.C. Now, this is 
still Charlie Baker's territory. This is not a race for federal office. This is a race for governor again. Uh, but the nationalization of our politics uh, is not going to cut in the governor's favor. The, the president is so deeply, deeply unpopular um, that I think the race for governor is going to turn into turn into a competitive fight. I, I, I'm going to translate that a little bit into the Senate race. I think Senator Warren is solid for re-election. I think that she's going to have a fight on her hands because Republicans are going to make sure she has a fight. They see her as a future uh, potential presidential candidate at the very least. They see her as somebody who's really a firebrand for uh, the progressive cause, and they want to try to damage her as much as they could. We all saw the 2012 Senate race get a little nasty uh, from time to time. But I have to tell you, I think that Elizabeth, despite being popular in her own right, despite having the right people around her, I think she's going to run a great campaign. You know, I think that the people of Massachusetts uh, do not want Donald Trump's Republicans speaking for them in Washington right now. So even if you wind up with a moderate uh, Republican Senate candidate, again, I hearken back to that 96 Senate race. This is not the time. This is not the moment. Uh, that Massachusetts voters are going to move in a more Republican direction. This is a time when Massachusetts voters are looking at the National Republican Party with uh, more scorn than they've just about ever had uh, in living memory. Awesome. So, Jason, I hope some of those predictions, they work out. Thank you so much for being on. So we are going to move on to our next segment. And uh, if anybody who listened last week, it was Joe Titino's LG of the Week. So, Jason, segue us into the next segment and tell us who your favorite LG of all time is. Well, I've got to highlight the Lincolns of Worcester. Uh, So uh, Levi Lincoln and his father, uh, both Worcester residents, both served as early, early lieutenant governors. I I think I'm jumping the gun on Joe here because uh, I'm going to get my my history wrong. I think the first Levi was the fourth or fifth lieutenant governor. And so if Joe was going to go in sequential order, I... uh, (laughs) <laughs> I may have just pulled the rug out from underneath him, but uh, gotta love the Lincolns of Worcester. Um, you know, Central Mass. Uh, more recently, obviously with Tim Murray and Karen Polito, uh, has a strong uh, tradition of uh, lieutenant governors. But I gotta, I gotta go with the first. Uh, so uh, I'll, I'll, I'll put the Lincolns right up there as, uh, as my favorites. Awesome, Joe. Tell us about uh, the the LG of the week, buddy. Jason, no problem. We do have a Lincoln today. Um, but is the Lincoln, Lincoln, not the, not the Shrewsbury Lincoln, the, the, Worcester, the Benjamin, Worcester, 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 excuse me, the Worcester. I'm sorry. Sorry about that. Um, the major general, <laughs> major general Benjamin Lincoln of Hingham, um, continuing our tradition of LGs of the day. He was a federalist served from 1788 to 1789. So he had the proverbial cup of coffee, coffee, uh, under John Hancock, his second go around. It's actually more famous for being uh, General George Washington's or President George Washington's first Secretary of War and also the first collector of the Port of Boston, uh, late 18th, early 19th century. Uh, just a quick rundown on his on his creds. Uh, he was a major general starting in 1776, uh, was responsible, along with Shrewsbury's Artemis Ward, another Shrewsbury shout out, uh, for improving the coastal fortifications along the Mass. you didn't. <laughs> I, I, in helping to improve the fortifications along Boston Harbor and the coast, um, saw action during the American Revolution and was one of the very few um, anyone in early America to be present at three uh, consequential surrenders, uh, one being Saratoga and then also the uh, surrender of Charleston, the surrender of Yorktown, the siege of Yorktown. Uh, he actually accepted the sword from the British. It wasn't George Washington. It was actually uh, General Benjamin Lincoln, who accepted the sword at Yorktown and the British surrender. Um, he was one of the uh, ratifiers of the U.S. Constitution. Uh, he was a delegate to the, to the um, Constitutional Convention and also helped to put an end to Shays' Rebellion, um, which ravaged across Massachusetts in 1787. And uh, interestingly enough, he was one of 10 men in the United States at the time of the first presidential election to receive at least one electoral vote. Um, that was from one voter down in Georgia who remembered his time uh, as a general in the Southern Theater during the American Revolution. Uh, Like we said, only one term as LG, died in Hingham in 1810, and one of his pallbearers was John Adams, as well as Robert Treat Payne, both signers of the Declaration of Independence. And surprisingly enough, uh, communities across the South and the North named after him, uh, you know, for example, Lincoln, uh, Lincoln, North Carolina, um, Lincoln, Kentucky, 
Those are actually named after Benjamin Lincoln, not Abraham Lincoln. Though Lincoln, Massachusetts is actually named after Lincoln, England. So there is your Lieutenant Governor of the Day, Major General Benjamin Lincoln of Hingham. And uh, we'll hit the Lincolns of Worcester in a future episode. Awesome. Joe, thank you for enlightening us on the LG of uh, the LG history in Massachusetts. Jason, you got any final thoughts before we sign off? Uh, just to say that I hope that uh, each Lincoln gets his own uh, separate episode uh, as the Lincolns of Worcester are so richly entitled to. Perfect. We'll, 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 uh, we'll make it happen. Joe, anything before Laying we sign off? It's a pleasure to uh, talk to you, Jason. Jason, I hope to grab a, uh, you know, a, an adult beverage at the White Eagle in downtown Worcester sometime in the near future. Great establishment. Great establishment. Jason, thanks for coming on, buddy. We appreciate it, and uh, catch us on the next episode of The Exit Poll. Thank you, everybody.